Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join Executive Pastor Dr. Tucker York. Invite you turn with me your Bible to 2 Corinthians 5. Pastor Walker plans to be back next week for Palm Sunday, taking this past week off for study leave. 2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 11. You be you. Love is love. Express yourself. Have it your way. We're all familiar with these cultural messages that urge us to serve ourselves. Many follow suit and find themselves even unhappier. Turns out we don't need marketers encouraging us towards self-indulgence. It comes naturally to us. Into, it was into this self-centered world that God sent his one and only son not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The call of the gospel not only restores us into relationship with God, but frees us to live in a whole new way with joy and satisfaction, living for him who died for you. Please follow as I read 2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not committing ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have included this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is God's word. Father, again, I would ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. 
Tom Brady is considered by many to be the GOAT of NFL quarterbacks, the greatest of all time, have played that position. Tom Brady lives to win football games, so much so that he recently renounced his premature retirement in a bid to play at least one more season. We'll find out next fall whether or not that was a good decision. The late Steve Jobs lived to make life-changing technologies. Warren Buffett lives to make money. Donald Trump lives to make a deal. All of these men have some admirable qualities when it comes to drive and determination and accomplishment. But I would not pose that we live like any of them, nor would I want my children to emulate them. Only Jesus is worthy of such an aspiration. Paul does not present Jesus to us as the goat of all Role models is that we should just strive to imitate him. As believers in Christ, we are not only called to be like him, but we have been redeemed and set free to live for him. Paul writes to remind us that in the flesh, we live to serve the flesh. But in Christ, we live to serve the Lord. We do this by being called by God, compelled by Christ, and made capable by the Holy Spirit. In verses 11 to 13, Paul makes brief reference to his calling from God. And in summary, verse 11, he says that he's been called by God to persuade men and women to follow after the Lord Jesus. This is what Paul lives for, what enabled him to endure his many sufferings, which he goes on to list in chapter 11. And what drives him is knowing the fear of the Lord. We persuade others. The rightful fear of God, recognizing that he is the just judge of all the earth, is motivating. Like Ezekiel's watchman, Paul is prepared to warn as many people as possible for the coming judgment. Paul lived by this motto, hell is real, time is short. Jesus says, go. But Paul has to deal with a complication in this passage. His opponents, his detractors are seeking to harm his reputation among the Corinthian churches who are repeatedly referenced throughout this letter. And throughout the letter, Paul has to defend himself, and yet he does not get defensive, but remains humble, truthful, and faithful to his calling. He says here, what we are, known to, what we are is known to God. He makes appeal to his own sincerity, his own authenticity and integrity before the Corinthian church. He is pressured later on in chapters 10 and 11, not because he wants to, but because he feels like it's good for the church, to list his credentials, his many beatings, having been flogged five times, and many other hardships that he bore for the name of Christ, and even supplied his own needs as a tent maker so as not to burden any of the church. And so he will not give anyone grounds for accusing him of being in it for the money or for the praise of man. Paul's calling was from God, and he served for an audience of one. In verse 12, rather than 
to promote himself. He wants to simply give the church grounds for making his defense and defending his record and reputation before his opponents. And the Corinthian church becomes a kind of reference letter who can answer for him anyone who had questions regarding his character or his ministry. And we have some odd language in verse 13 about being beside ourselves for God and are in our right minds for you, the church. And Paul may be referencing to ecstatic religious experiences that his opponents would appeal to to give them grounds for a following. Paul will later in chapter 12 recount his vision that the Lord gave him of the highest heavens. But I believe Paul here is saying that he does not need miracles or special religious experiences to be counted a legitimate apostle of Christ. His legitimacy is rooted in his calling from God and demonstrated by his faithfulness to preach the word without fear of opposition. Paul models for us the kind of ministry characterized by dignity and self-control and not manipulating people's emotions to gain a following. Paul is no mere peddler of goods. He's a man on a mission, called by God to persuade men to stop following the vain things of this world and to start following Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Over the years, my children have brought home various fundraisers from schools and sports and asked for my help to sell them. And I've found that it's a lot easier to persuade people to buy things that you believe in. On one occasion, we were asked to sell repackaged cleaning and detergent products. And the price was right, but we found that they were watered down and not very effective. We'll opt out the next time. Whether it's fundraisers, interviews, asking someone out on a date, there are times that we must persuade others. And we're not all called to be itinerant church planters like the Apostle Paul. And not every Christian is a missionary. But we are all witnesses. And must be prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have I would challenge all able-bodied young people who love the Lord to seriously and prayerfully consider a vocational calling into ministry for the sake of Jesus' name among the nations. And if your calling is more of the secular variety, you are still called to support the church in missions to the best of your ability making lifestyle choices, and even sacrifices to help maximize resources to help others reach the nations and fulfill the Great Commission. Live in such a way to persuade as many people as possible to turn away from sin and turn to the living God. We are called by God to persuade others. We are also compelled by Christ to love others. In verse 14, Paul says, the love of Christ controls us. That verb means restrain, as to restrain and prevent from entering self-seeking. It's like the love of a beloved mother who motivates her children towards better behavior. 
Yet people will do almost anything for the person that loves them best or for the people that you love the most. Ultimately, we do what we love to do. If we love sinning, we will keep on sinning. If we love righteousness for Christ's sake, we will pursue righteousness. So what is the nature of Christ's love? He died for all. Recently in our Tuesday night ESL ministry, one of the teachers was giving a devotion and one of the students asked, why did Jesus have to die? What a golden opportunity for the teacher to explain the gospel to the entire class. Modern people understand that heroes die sacrificially to save others, but the ancient peoples understood pretty universally that death and bloodshed were required and necessary to appease the wrath of the gods. Virtually every culture in the history of the world has had some form of animal sacrifice, even human sacrifice. Of course, God forbid Israel from human sacrifice. Though God had commanded Father Abraham to sacrifice his only son Isaac, he held his hand back when he passed the test. But death is a necessary payment for sin. Jesus had to die to pay the penalty for sin. No number or amount of animal sacrifices was ever enough to pay the price. And it was a penalty that you and I could not pay by our good deeds or even by our own deaths. An infinitely holy God requires an infinitely holy sacrifice. Only the God-man, Jesus Christ, was able to make that payment. And so the choice is yours. The choice is for every human person on earth to either accept the substitution of Jesus in your place or to have it your way in an eternity of hellish separation from God. Jesus died for all. Therefore, all died. We died to what? Sin. Paul is not saying that Jesus died for every human person on earth or that everyone has died to sin, as he clarifies throughout his letter to the Corinthians and his letter to the Romans. Jesus died for every person who is in Christ, those who believe who have been elected and called, born again by faith and repentance. Romans 5 clarifies that we are all born dead in sin, in Adam, our first father. But we are made alive in Christ by faith. Now, Paul does not spell out all of his theology here in 2 Corinthians 5, but he does lay, out, lay for us this one clear implication. Jesus died for us that we might no longer live for ourselves, but for him. Our culture doesn't really understand sin because it's forgotten that God is holy. But most people understand selfishness. 
But I would venture to guess that most people believe that selfishness is something that you do. But the Bible clarifies that selfishness is something that you are. It is because by nature we are steeped in selfishness. Jesus had to die to pay our penalty to God. This set us free from the misery of living a life of self-centeredness. Selfish people are never really happy because selfishness is never satisfied. Nothing in all of creation can satisfy it. It is a bottomless pit. Parents, even non-Christian parents, understand and recognize and try to correct selfishness in their own children. The people who learn to give and serve are the happiest. Paul was perhaps the most joyful person ever. Second only to the Lord Jesus, because he understood and lived out this truth, the freedom and the joy of living to serve God and other people. His calling was not a burden. It was freedom from the burden of self. And the love of Christ did not compel him to live a life of regret and misery, looking forward to heaven for mere relief. John 15, just hours before his betrayal, his arrest, his mock trial, flogging, and crucifixion on a Roman cross. After just telling the disciples to abide in him, to bear fruit and love one another, Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. You don't need good circumstances to have joy. You do not need all your gimmies and your wantsies to be happy. You may find lasting joy when you deny yourself and take up your cross and follow your Savior. We find deep and lasting joy when we die to self and no longer Live for ourselves, but for him who died and was raised. I'd like to apply verse 16 to this point, where Paul writes, From now on we regard no one according to the flesh. He indicates the same about Christ. Paul, of course, before his conversion, would have considered Jesus a heretic, a man condemned by God when he was hung on a cross. But the power of the Spirit removed the scales from Paul's eyes, allowed him to see Jesus as the Lord of glory. In our flesh, how do we regard others? Well, we judge them. We envy them. We criticize them. We compare ourselves to them. We may admire them in idolatrous ways. But the love of Jesus Jesus rescues us from selfishly regarding other people according to the flesh. In Christ, we can love people, think the best about others, want the best for others, empathize with them, encourage them, show grace to difficult people, show mercy to those who need forgiveness. In Christ, we do not need to keep score or get the last word or the last laugh. 
We can tease and have fun that in a way that builds others up and does not tear them down. In Christ, we can create community with other believers in a way that is attractive to those who are lost and starving for love and acceptance. When I came to Christ over the Christmas break of my junior year of high school, it was like the previous semester I was walking in darkness In my second semester, I was walking in the light. My eyes were open. I saw everything differently. I saw the hideous idols of my attachment to grades and athletics. I saw how empty my life pursuits were, what I was living for at that time. I became a new creation. In the last year and a half of my high school years, My new Christian friends and I, we gathered together and there were others who came around us who wanted what we had, that joy and fellowship, that freedom from the peer pressure, which was so heavy at my school, drugs and alcohol and sex and so forth. That's happening here at Westminster. Two of our Congolese young ladies recently gave their hearts to Christ through one of our Wednesday night girls' club meetings. Praise God as he works in our midst. So how do we live for him who died for us? We have been called by God to persuade others. We are compelled by Christ to love others. And we are made capable by the Spirit to live for Christ. It's by the Holy Spirit that we become new creations, ministers of reconciliation and ambassadors for Christ. Though the Spirit is not directly mentioned in our passage, you have to go back to verse 5 to see him mentioned, but he's all over this letter in terms of Paul's theology, helping us understand how the Holy Spirit applies to us the finished work of Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. This short prepositional phrase is packed with theological power in Christ. This is the summary of all the numerous benefits that we have of being united with Christ. We've been justified in Christ. We are sanctified in Christ. We are forgiven, adopted, have new life, we're set on the course to heaven In Christ, Jesus is now our identity and one that trumps all of our other identities, our families, our ethnicity, our socioeconomic standing, and so forth. In John 15, Jesus gives the image of the vine and the branches to communicate this idea of union with him. We are the branches that are attached to him to receive nourishment, to bear fruit. We are new creations. Born again. The old has passed away. The new has come. We are no longer condemned for our sin, but cleansed, covered, accepted, and bearing the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, the Bible uses a number of different terms to describe 
our salvation. We have been redeemed, bought back, purchased from our slavery to sin. We have received atonement that our sins might be covered. We have been justified, no longer counted guilty before God, just as if we had never sinned. But here Paul speaks of us being reconciled to God. It's a relational term. You see, that relationship had been severed by the disobedience of our first parents and perpetuated with every generation since by our own sin. Jesus restores our relationship with God. He removes the alienation that separates us. He is the elder brother who came to us in the far country to bring us back home to the Father, to join the family of God. Not only have we been reconciled to God, we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. It is our task. And it is our privilege to be agents of reconciliation, to join the elder brother, to welcome fellow sons and daughters of the living God back home. We follow the good shepherd to gather lost sheep. We befriend the friendless. We compel the fearful to come to the feet of Jesus, to come to the loving, most loving of fathers who will never hurt them or turn us away. It is remarkable that Jesus entrusted this message to his followers. Here we are some 2,000 years later, 40% of the world's population has never heard of Jesus and has no easy access to the gospel. We'll be born, we'll live, and we'll die without ever having met a Christian unless we do something about it. The challenge is great. To extend the message of reconciliation among the least reached, 95% of whom live in the 1040 windows stretching across North Africa, the Middle East, Central and South Asia. It is a grand and great commission. But if we would be stewards of this message of reconciliation, we must be faithful with it here, with our own families, our neighbors, our friends, the people we work with and go to school with, In fact, you don't have to go very far to be an agent of reconciliation among the nations. They've come right here to Lancaster County. The Burmese, the Congolese in our midst, Sudanese, the Vietnamese, Afghanis, Ukrainians, and others. Other refugees and immigrant groups are right here in our backyard. And Paul says that we are more than messengers. We are ambassadors for Christ. An ambassador is one who represents one government to another. As ambassadors, we represent God. To those who belong to the government of this world or under the rule and the tyranny of Satan, we live in a dark world, but thankfully belong to another and are under Christ's authority. And with that authority, we are called to offer his terms of peace to the world which are often misunderstood and can provoke negative and violent reactions. The story is told of Joseph, an African Maasai warrior, who heard the gospel on his travels along the road and with great excitement returned home to his village. 
to share the good news with his tribe. With great fervency, he went from door to door to tell his people about the cross and the salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. But his fellow villagers didn't care. In fact, they turned on him. The men seized him, held him down on the ground as the women beat him with barbed wire. And they took him through him into the bush to leave him for dead. Remarkably, he recovered a few days later and tried again, figuring he must have left something out of his message. And so he went back to the village and preached again. And a second time, the men grabbed him and the women beat him and reopening his wounds that were just beginning to heal and drag him once again outside the village. And then miracle, miracle upon miracles, Joseph recovered again. And this time with great determination, knowing that if he did not get the message to his people, who would? And so he refused to give up. He returned to the village, but was attacked by the people even before he opened his mouth. And as he was being flogged, he spoke of Jesus one last time. And before he passed out, he saw that one of the women that was beating him had begun to weep. When Joseph awoke, he found that he was in his own bed. The ones who were trying to beat him to death were now trying to save his life. The whole village had come to Christ. Living for Christ, persuading others may come at a heavy price. It may cost family connections, friendships, a lower standard of living, living far away if you're called to the unreached parts of the world, away from family and Western comforts, toiling in difficult soil. But is it not worth it for the glory of God and for the one whom God made sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God? When I was about 12 years of age, I traded a nearly worthless baseball card with a kid who gave me a 1986 Jose Canseco rookie card, which was valued at about $60 at the time. It's worth much less now. But at the time, it was the deal of my young life. God offers us a far better trade. As we give him our worthless, filthy rags of our sin, and in exchange, he gives us the robe of Jesus Christ that we may be clothed in his righteousness and stand before God in his glory. This is the great exchange that beckons you and I to live for him who died for you. Our flesh, our culture, our peers will give us many reasons to tone down our Christian faith, to not take it too seriously, to play it safe, to live for self, and so forth. One aging Christian objected to John 
Patton's plan to serve as a missionary among the South Pacific Islanders. You'll be eaten by cannibals, he argued. Patton replied, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave. They're to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Whether you serve Christ near or far, remember that he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, indeed you are worthy, indeed your Son is worthy of all praise and honor and all sacrifice. May we, by your grace, live in such a way as to magnify you, to glorify you, to make your name great in our community and among the nations. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m., To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.